Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Well, it was to be expected. The Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, a ruling that decades ago gave women the constitutional right to an abortion. Earlier today, abortion rights opponents cheered outside the nation's highest court. While those with opposing views were nearby, that included many members of Congress. Here's longtime Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters. You see this turnout here? You ain't seen nothing yet. Women are going to control their bodies no matter how they try and stop us. The hell with the Supreme Court. We will defy them. While anticipated, today's Supreme Court decision has so many other issues tied to it, so many optics, so many tentacles, as we say a lot on this program. Here's one, how this historic decision places abortion rights on the ballot come those November midterm elections. What happens next for Georgia's abortion law the current, that's currently on hold by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals? So much to unpack here, and we want to let you know that this edition of Closer Look will be expanded beyond our usual hour. A lot to get to today. Let's first welcome from Georgia State University law professors Tanya Washington and Anthony Michael Christ. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Rose. Thank you, Rose. Let's begin here. You both have been on before. Uh, Professor Washington, I'll start with you, your overall reaction. It, we now know because we had that leak draft earlier uh, earlier in the year, but now we have the ruling, your overall reaction? You know, even when you see or are aware that a tsunami is coming, it still feels differently when it actually reaches shore and the, the consequences and implications become come into sharp focus. And so today I'm just thinking about what this means for women. And my first reaction is that it really, um, it really takes away full citizenship from women. If, if your right to control your body is not consider, considered fundamental and constitutionally protected, then what rights do women have that are fundamental? Professor Christ. I, I knew this day was coming much like you know, everybody else because of the leaked draft and just what we know about the Supreme Court and its makeup. Um, I had thought that perhaps in wake of the backlash, maybe there would be some changes to the tenor of the opinion, or at least perhaps, um, right, some kind of saving grace in the sense of a, a, a pronouncement that, a, uh, that if a woman's life was in danger, the Constitution would protect her, or, you know, certain protections must 
exist for victims of rape and incest. And that was not present in that decision today. And of course, we have a concurring opinion. And I, I think this is important because you raised the last time I was here, I said, you know, LGBTQ rights and these other kind of sexual liberty rights are, you know, endangered perhaps with overturning Roe, but maybe not quite imminently. And Justice Thomas today very clearly stated that he welcomed the return of a era um, that would criminalize gays in this country. And I think that that really sent a shockwave to me beyond the, the, you know, the retrenchment of this basic fundamental constitutional right for women that that's you know, to me, signals we are all imminently in danger. And we'll get to that in just a moment, that in the exact paragraph there that I know you're referencing. I want to also let folks know that I personally reached out to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, invited him on the show, as well as some other state Republican lawmakers who were pushing Georgia's abortion law. We have not heard back from any of them. But I do have a statement, as uh, Governor Kemp put out on Twitter, that says, quote, today's landmark ruling is a historic victory for life. I look forward to its impact on the legal proceedings surrounding Georgia's Life Act and hope our law will be fully implemented and ultimately protect countless unborn lives here in the Peach State. Working closely with the General Assembly, we have made significant strides to stand for life at all stages from adoption and foster care reform to combating human trafficking and passing the heartbeat bill and we will continue that important work in the days and months to come close quote that again is from georgia governor brian kemp and again i personally reached out and invited him on the program as well as some other republican lawmakers uh, we have not heard back for them getting back to our professors here let's talk about this opinion now that we know in its official capacity. Uh, Professor Christ, I'll go back to you because you mentioned what stood out to you. And it is that paragraph that Justice Thomas talks about what, through his lens, I'm going to read it here, where he talks about all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Oberfell. And so he's referencing same-sex marriage here. I mean... You know, the the right to privacy is a bundle of rights, and that includes the right to contraception access, which is Griswold. Mm -hmm. It is partially the right to marry, which is uh, for same-sex couples, a Burgerfell. It's also the right to not be arrested for having sex with people of the same sex, um, which was a decision in 1986 called Bowers, which came out of Georgia where the Supreme Court said you could throw people in jail for simply base, you know, being gay, which came with a whole host of consequences, which meant perhaps gay folks were not uh, qualified to be teachers or to serve in the military or to have security clearances because they were criminals by default. And that today is what Justice Thomas advocated for and in part advocated for because one of the bundle, you know, one stick in the bundle of rights to privacy, this right to abortion, the right to uh, reproductive health care has been taken out. And so all of those other basic fundamental privacy rights, which we hold dear, which is not just for LGBTQ people, it is just the right to have your family ordered in the way that you want, the, you know, the right to just be left alone sometimes. All of these are imperiled by what happened today. So yes, there may be many hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions of people, men, who don't think that they're directly impacted today by the, the ruling, mm -hmm. but that is just simply untrue. Professor Washington, in terms of the opinion, and it's uh, over 200 pages, pick out those points for you. I mean, I, 
I think the, the majority opinion attempted to cabin uh, the decision to say, you know, nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubts on precedents that, uh, you know, do not concern abortion. But, you know, uh, that was completely contradicted by Justice Thomas's um, concurring opinion, which I think foreshadows where we are headed. So, you know, you, you pull the, the constitutional thread and the whole thing, a whole panoply of rights begin to unravel. Um, for members of, well, for people who are not part of the LGBTQ community, we need to be concerned that marriage itself, which is not articulated in the constitution, um, that you know was recognized in Loving versus Virginia as a constitutionally protected right is imperiled if you choose someone of a different race. Um, I'm thinking about rights like you know uh, education. It's not articulated in the Constitution. I know the court has said it's not a fundamental right, but this kind of ju jurisprudential approach mm -hmm. to politicizing whether a right is fundamental or not is problematic beyond just the rights of women that have been decimated today. I want to go back to the opinion for a moment because in considering as the court writes, what they were examining, and this was one, the court examines whether the right to obtain an abortion is rooted in the nation's history and tradition and whether it is an essential component of, quote, ordered liberty. The court finds that the right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. What do you make of that, Professor Washington? I mean, I think that definition is vacuous, right? The definition of what constitutes a fundamental right is it so deeply a part of our history and our tradition? But the question is whose history, which tradition, right? So I'm 50 years old, um, actually 51 and a half. <laughs> and so Roe was in existence for m most of my life. It is, you know, it's something that women have relied on to order their lives in order to exercise autonomy and agency and sovereignty over their choices, they don't have that anymore. To me, th that qualifies as a fundamental right, right? The power that it gave women over their bodies that no longer exists as of the publication of this decision. Professor, what do you make of that passage that I read, read in terms of the court saying what they examined and what they came up with? You know, history is very difficult because, you know, I, I am a political historian by training and mm -hmm. I recognize that uh, history is hard to assess. There are multiple factors and there's lots of nuance and there's, there's changing ideas and there's, you know, underlying reasons for that that we may not want to embrace, um, even if there's some other historical trend that we might want to, um, you know, hitch our wagon to. The Supreme Court, they are not historians, and they really showed it today, because there is, in fact, uh, a fairly longstanding history of letting women make these choices. Um, you know, if you looked at newspaper ads at the turn of the century, mm -hmm. you would see in print, in newspapers, in circulation, advertisements for abortions now they don't call them abortions because it's a, right. The terminology has changed, mm -hmm. 
Um, but you would see that advertised in the public space. Um, it was only once you had a moral panic, um, right? What we call the Comstock laws, where all of a sudden states wanted to suppress women from engaging reproductive choices over their own bodies, which by the way, came at the same time that laws were be becoming introduced to restrict and regulate the ability of people to have same-sex intimacy. Mm -hmm. These are not, these have historically been quite, you know, they've been yoked together. And so the history is bad. Um, the histories that the Supreme Court came out with today, you know, or actually this entire week has been bad. And, and I think when we say, you know, even if history is correct, um, you know, kind of echo what my colleague just brilliantly said, um, even if the history is spot on, we should really loathe the idea that, you know, a justification for a constitutional rule is we have always done it that way, because that is a very dangerous thing to say. I mean, right. Look at look at anti-miscegenation laws mm -hmm. and the rules against interracial marriage. Those date back to the colonial period. If we always did it that way is the justification for something, then was Loving versus Virginia, right? What does that mean for that? I mean, I think we really need to have a very serious conversation as a, as a society, as what we want our constitutional order to look like and how we should put history into its, or operationalize history in that constitutional decision-making process. And I wanna just pick up on a thread sure. of something my colleague said. Um, there are aspects of our history as a nation that we do not want to repeat, okay, historically, people like me, for your listeners who don't know, I'm African-American, we're enslaved people. I don't want that historical reality to be used to justify forcing me to labor without compensation. Um, historically, women were considered dependents and second-class citizens over whom their husbands could exercise dominion economic dominion, mm -hmm. social dominion, political dominion. We don't want to return to that history. And so we need, we need to be more um, discriminating in terms of how we view history and whether we're going to use it to justify something that makes no sense in the current reality in which we live. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Georgia State University law professors Tanya Washington and Anthony Michael Christ. And of course, we're talking about that historic ruling today, overturning Roe versus Wade. I want to get to something else for you all to weigh in on as it relates to the opinion. It says, finally, the court considers whether a right to obtain an abortion is part of a broader entrenched right that is supported by other precedents. The court concludes a right to obtain an abortion cannot be justified as a component of such a right attempts to justify abortion through appeals to a broader right to autonomy and to define one's, cons quote, concept of existence prove too much. A lot in there. And I, got, I read it three or four times. Professor Washington, I'll go back to you. What does that mean? Or, was this, or what do they think it's supposed to mean? I, I want to think about that for a moment and let my colleague respond first as I gather my thoughts. Anthony? Let, let me let me offer my my thoughts. All right. You know, again, this goes back to the idea of the bundle of rights. Mm -hmm. Abortion is not a standalone thing, um, notwithstanding the frantic hand waving and all the gestures and the cold comfort that the majority has said, well, abortion is just different. Um, you know, all these other things are, you know, contraception sexual partners, family formation, 
um, right? The, the ability of parents to exercise control over their decisions about their children, right? In their education, in their well-being. All of these things are interconnected and interrelated. And if you look at, for example, Lawrence versus Texas, which is the case that decriminalized or said that as a constitutional right, uh, you, you, you could not criminalize same-sex relations mm-hmm. um, or marriage. These are tied into this idea, which Justice Kennedy articulated, um, which is what the court is speaking to, that part of liberty must mean the ability to search for yourself and find your own place in the universe. And if you cannot, as a nation, protect that basic idea of, of self-actualization and a journey, right, to protect your own journey in life, then what are we doing here? And the court today said, we don't care. We don't care about that at all. And if you think that these things are interrelated, you're wrong. And, and it's just, it's intellectually dishonest and it's dangerous. And we are in a deeply perilous place if you believe in freedom and if you believe in liberty, because who knows what's on the chopping block next. And we'll get to that in a moment. But Professor, I want to go back then because I think for our listeners, and, and I know many of them, some are saying, well, what was 1992 all about? Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the Supreme Court, in, in an opinion, upheld the right to have an abortion. Obviously, that was established in Roe v. Wade. In altering now with this decision, someone listening says, well, in the opinion, can you explain to us how the court then came up with the assertion that the 1992 decision was wrong. And this is, of course, through their writings, not just through your assessment, but based on their writings. Professor? Well, what the court said about Casey today is that Casey took an unexamined look at the right that Roe constitutionalized and just endorsed it without actually explaining that that it, it imbued the, the right that Roe recognized with constitutionality without articulating why. Um, but that's that was not improper. Like, you know, the, it had been determined in Roe that this right exists. And then we had to figure out, well, what are the bounds of this right? Mm-hmm. And that's what the cases that follow Roe do. They, you know, they articulate the lines that we can't cross in terms of state regulation of this constitutionally recognized right. The most disturbing part of this decision and the reasoning of the court is that it is saying that the right that Roe recognized was never constitutionally protected, ever. That women have never had this right. Professor Christ, going back to that 1992 decision, the Casey decision here, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, your thoughts on then what the Supreme Court was saying today that was wrong about that decision decades ago? Well, the art of being a lawyer, and this is something I tell my students all the time, mm-hmm. the art of being a lawyer is in the line drawing. And anytime you have a constitutional right, there's going to be a tug and a pull, and there will be forces that push in different directions. And the lines will have to be reconsidered and redrawn. And that's particularly true with abortion because the science has also kind of evolved and the social movement evolved. And, and so Casey was trying to deal with, a, a, you know, a new problem in a new moment. And that's what courts do. Um, and in reaffirming the basic core of Roe, I think the court understood that 
right? Most Americans believed in Roe and most Americans believed, even if they had reservations about certain forms of abortion, that, that something fundamental still needed to be protected. And for some reason, the Supreme Court today says that they know better than a supermajority of Americans and then and multiple Supreme Courts in years of jurisprudence. And I think that, you know, that's that's a lot of hubris, but it's, you know, mm-hmm. like I said before, a lot of what they've talked about, um, I think it's just intellectually dishonest because that is just precisely what courts do. I want to shift for a moment and then come to you all as academics, as professors who are educating future jurists. Professor Christ, then based on what you just said, you come to you have class this this fall. Obviously, I know this is going to be a part of it. What do you tell your students about the judicial process and the role of the nation's high court here? The Supreme Court has historically been a majoritarian institution. And by that, I mean it ref- it's it's like a, a reflection of who we are as a people, the electoral decisions we make, and the institutions through which we make them. It's not a perfect mirror, and I think we've noticed that today because for the first time in a long time, the Supreme Court does not look, think, and act like most Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, all Supreme Court jurisprudence is, is an articulation of, of our national ideals. And perhaps today's decision does not reflect that. I, that's my belief. But the Supreme Court is doing today what the Supreme Court has always done. And, and our job as lawyers and as scholars is to understand that and to understand that constitutional law in particular is not, is not so much about law as we would typically think of it, mm-hmm. um, but it's about the history of doctrine. And today is one of those days where the doctrinal turn in American constitutional law is pronounced and salient, and that's rare, but this is, this is not unknown in the history of the United States Supreme Court. Professor Washington? So I will be teaching family law in the spring. And when I was last with you, Rose, I talked about um, my final exam assignment last semester Mm -hmm. was to invite my students to actually draft the opinion in Dobbs. Um, We had studied all of the cases, starting with Griswold, which Professor Christ mentioned, all the way up to the Dobbs opinion. They watched the um, or listened to the oral arguments and I asked them to draft an opinion. I was less concerned with the conclusion that they reached than I was with the analysis that led them to that uh, conclusion, including um, interpretations and applications of precedents. And so when I teach this class in the spring, what it allows me to highlight is something my colleague mentioned, which is that the, you know, that the Supreme Court is a majoritarian institution and that it that it is not immune to politics. Mm -hmm. Um, It not only does it examine kind of the history of doctrine, but it's also engaged in the creation of doctrine. And that creative process is informed by the perspectives and uh, of the justices themselves. And this allows me to give my students, um, as does the jurisprudence leading up to Obergefell, Mm-hmm. an opportunity to watch how doctrine evolves and watch the court grapple with justifications to achieve, in some instances, political outcomes that are at odds with where the public is. 
Right. So, so we're going to really and we are really going to take a close look at at this case and the cases that led to it and what the court did with those cases in reaching this decision. I read a piece earlier this year that talked about and I believe the, the title of the piece was something that I always say, let's be real or let's be clear. The Supreme Court is political. There is no way to rein in some nonpartisan expectations here on behalf of the nation's high court anymore. That was sort of the core of it. Mm-hmm. Professor Washington, is, is that where we are? Yes. And I mean, the the institution, I think, is is probably much to the chagrin of, it, of at least the Chief Justice, seen increasingly as a political institution. I think it, at one point it enjoyed kind of apolitical status, mm-hmm. but I think in recent years, it has, you know, kind of been revealed to be less um, less apolitical than it would probably want to be regarded as. Um, and I think we we saw that even in the Justice Jackson uh, confirmation proceeding. Mm-hmm. Like justices are people who live in a society in a particular moment in time. And as much as we would like to think that their decisions are purely based on precedent and Um, legal tools for analysis and interpretation, what informs how they use those tools and to what ends they use those tools are the same things that inform the subjectivity that is part of the human experience. Bias, prejudice, experience, Mm -hmm. the lived experience. And so we're seeing that, I think, in very stark terms in this um, decision that changes the lives of so many millions of Americans. Professor Christ, your thoughts on that? So, you know, in 1803, we had a case called Marbury versus Madison. Your familiar, your listeners are probably familiar with it, but basically established the idea of judicial review, which is what we're talking about today, right? The mm-hmm. idea that courts can look and assess constitutionality of, of laws. And there in 1803, the Supreme Court made a decision which was just kind of atextual and a little bit weird and it did. It was a decision born out of a political consequence, political reasoning. Um, you know, you had a case about legal tender law in, mm-hmm. in the 1870s, and it, the court one year decided it one way, and then there was a couple new appointments, and they reversed course the next year. The court has always been a political body. The difference is, is that 99% of the time the court looks and acts like most Americans think, and so they don't see it as political because it reflects their universe and their way of thinking. But what the court has done today and yesterday and increasingly in the last year or so has done things which I think most Americans, if not an overwhelming supermajority of Americans, reject. And so the, the polarization of American politics and the deep fissures that are, are embedded in American politics, particularly in the last five years, six years, um, you know, this is a moment for the court that is hyper-political in a way that we've seen before, particularly with the New Deal in the 1930s. The Supreme Court did things that the FDR and the New Deal Democrats mm-hmm. and most Americans just rejected. And, and you know, the court suffered blowback for that. Will that happen again? I don't know. But, but it's not out of, you know, it's not a historical anomaly for the court to be in the position that it's in today. What happens here on out? That's the open question that scholars like myself will be thinking and studying for, for years to come. Professor Washington, you want to add something? 
Um, I, I wanted to say something about the court's approach to its stare decisis analysis, which I explain that for our listeners. Problem problematic. Um, it's it's a rule that encourages the court to adhere to precedents, mm-hmm. right? To apply precedents and not to just overrule its own previous rulings, unless it. It meets a particular test. But they didn't do that in this opinion. Uh, well, they Did kind they? of, in my opinion, they ignored it. Um, and they compared, this is something I just find astonishing. They compared the Roe decision to Plessy versus Ferguson. So for your listeners, Plessy was a, a decision that that codified the very racialized mm-hmm fictitious doctrine of separate but equal. That if you provide equal schools or carriages on a train or parks or pools for black people, um, you can separate them from white people. As long as there is another, you know, there is a black equivalent. Now, leaving aside the fact that there were often not pools and Mm -hmm. parks and museums for black people, that's what makes it fictitious. It was a doctrine that was deeply problematic, that persisted for many, many years, almost a a century. And they compared Roe to that, as if Roe was that kind of evil. Professor Christ- that recognized liberty interests for women was compared to something that racialized and discriminated against Black people. So, Professor Christ, for a listener who just is listening to what Professor Washington just said, in terms of what the court is supposed to rule and, and if possible, always have some type of some precedence here, which it's lost in there somewhere. I think Professor Washington put a lot better than I did. But for listeners says, well, then what is what is the purpose then? If this, what does it say if our nation's high court cannot have a ruling where they sort of reach and really reach for some type of previous ruling that for many people may not even know of or are just quite frankly thinking that has nothing to do one has nothing to do with the other I just had to put it out there in in my old my grandfather's terms because that's what he would say that has nothing to do with the other well let me just add by the way to my colleague's astute statement that yesterday the Supreme Court in quasi favorable terms I don't want to say favorable terms but as supplemental authority cited the Dred Scott decision, mm-hmm. which for listeners who don't know, was the decision that said that black Americans were not entitled to the citizenship of the United States. Um, and, and that decision was used and contorted in a way to talk about gun rights favorably. So I don't know what we are doing here. Mm-hmm. What I do know is what is what, you know, kind of the step back from my personal thoughts is, you know, the Supreme Court has issued opinions that we call anti-canon. And these are decisions that are supposed to be so bad that we should never want to revisit them again because they, they did so much damage to the institution of the court, but more importantly to American society. Mm-hmm. And these decisions are the Dred Scott decision, the Plessy decision, a decision called Lochner versus New York, which was about a right to contract, which basically said you couldn't regulate business at all. And the Korematsu case, which was a decision which allowed for the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And and what the Supreme Court is doing by invoking Plessy versus Ferguson is to say that Roe versus Wade is anti-canon. We shall not return to it ever again. 
We should never cite to it for any reason, and we should condemn it as a society. And that's what they're trying to do here. As we wrap up, let's take a look real quickly, and we're going to bring in Sam Greenglass in just a moment, our WAB politics reporter, which will have more in terms of what this means for Georgia's abortion law. That's been held up by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. They were waiting on this decision. Professor Christ, I'll stick with you for a moment. What happens here, you think? Georgia law is incredibly radical. Um, it, it, it you know, essentially says that at six weeks, uh, a fetus becomes a person by definition. Um, and, you know, there, there's this idea of a fetal heartbeat, which is not accurate. It is fetal heart tones, it is cellular cardiac activity. Um, but that if you detect that, you know, suddenly a fetus becomes a person. Now, that means a lot of things. It means now suddenly miscarriages are going to be susceptible to investigation and we might have murder charges on the horizon. And, you know, women will not be able to get abortions before they even know they're pregnant in many instances, because six weeks is not much time at all. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen as a matter of federal constitutional law. I mm-hmm. think, you know, perhaps we'll get into this in more detail later, but, um, you know, there will be state constitutional challenges because the state constitution, the Georgia constitution, mm-hmm. is exponentially more protective of the right to privacy as a matter of historical practice than the federal constitution. Though I am under no delusion that the Georgia courts, in particular the Georgia Supreme Court, will be favorable and welcoming to uh, abort claims of abortion under the state constitution, but those claims will be made. So while litigation is probably short-circuited in the federal courts now, um, and there will be claims that will be continued to brought in the federal courts, but they will be fairly uh, cabined and limited, we are, I think we are about to see a, a wave of litigation under the Georgia state constitution claiming that women have a fundamental state constitutional right to reproductive health care. And so that's, I think that's the next phase. Um, so the litigation in the federal courts, again, probably going to come to an end fairly quickly, fairly soon. But, but you know, what ends, you know, one door is going to close, but I think another door is about to open. Professor Washington. And I think we need to be um, consistent in how we uh, create and apply law. So if if a fetus is considered um, a person at conception, then child support needs to start at conception, right? There are all these other laws. You should get a tax break for your dependency at conception. You should be able to carry that fetus on your insurance for health benefits at conception. We are not going to carve out like one categorization of life that doesn't affect other areas of law. And so part of the pushback will also be to push lawmakers to be consistent in how they are defining life, not just in the context of abortion, but in the context of child support, in the context of health care, and all of these other affected areas of law. And I think people will then start to see that this is not a logical construction of law. I want to get this question in from a listener who says, Rose, what are your your guest thoughts on a Supreme Court that has trended now to dominant religious rights as opposed to separation of church and state? We've heard this conversation before in terms of separation of church and state. We had a ruling just this week also from the nation's high court as it related to private schools. I just want you all to, to address this listener's question here. So I, I think that we, you know, so for, for listeners who don't know, uh, the Supreme Court this week said that Maine essentially had to uh, offer private 
religious schools uh, funding if they also funded this kind of quasi voucher program. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but mm-hmm. um, if they if they funded a program for non sectarian or for for non sectarian schools, then they have to also give money to religious schools on an equal basis, um, which seems to kind of run a run a but. Uh, or run against the idea of separation of church and state. Now, uh, there's also a case that that's pending um, probably next week now that, you know, whether school officials can pray and in a kind of coercive way with students. Um, You know, there is, I mean, I think there is an impulse from this court that seeks to, in absolutionist ways, protect any religious claim. Now, I do want to note, though, that, that, that there is a relationship between this and abortion, because there is, for example, a claim in Florida um, under st- state law that uh, that people who are Jewish and have a belief that abortion access is a is a religious uh, mandate for them to provide and help women secure abortions, that their restrictive law in Florida should you know be should yield to their religious convictions and that should they should have a religious exemption. Um, you know, from from the Florida restrictive law. Um, I don't think that's really going to go anywhere with the courts, because I think what the courts will say is, well, the government has a compelling interest in protecting fetal life, and that outweighs whatever religious interest you have. But what that calls into question, very similarly to what Professor Washington was just talking about, is that, right, is the incongruity mm-hmm. of legal rules you know, right, where people just get different idea or get different benefits from particular rules, depending on the the right background and the priors that judges have about what what counts for more. And and so I think, you know, we are just in a very deeply troubling moment in the United States, where our entire constitutional order seems to be being turned on its head. And and I and I think that we really need to pump the brakes here as a society and ask ourselves what do we want because you know it seems like we you know women no longer have a right that they've had for 50 years it looks like that religious folks depending if they're favored or not by the courts are going to have become laws unto themselves and and that's just you know that's just a place i don't think that most people want to be professor washington real quick back up and i apologize we got just about a minute for this segment but your, your thoughts on what that listener emailed me Yes, it was a great question, and I would add to the list of cases that uh, Professor Christ cited, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, where the Catholic Church is allowed to discriminate against um, uh, discriminate against the City of Philadelphia in its attempt to allow same-sex couples to actually provide foster care services. Mm-hmm. Like we are willing to injure citizens in order to respect religious freedom. And I think that's a dangerous choice to make. From Georgia State University, law professors Tanya Washington and Anthony Michael Christ, thank you both for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Stay with us. There's more coverage coming up on this special edition of Closer Look. And again, this will be an extended edition of Closer Look. So hang with us. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.org. 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And this special edition of Closer Look continues here on 90.1 from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. This is Closer Look. And we want to remind you that, again, we reached out to several Republican state lawmakers, also personally extended an invitation to Governor Brian Kemp. No one has returned our calls. We will let you know that in the next hour we are expected to hear from a representative from Georgia Right to Life. So you all can stop tweeting and emailing and accusing us of not being fair. Let's bring in our WABE politics reporters, Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally, who have been checking in with state lawmakers and also been covering, of course, how this all impacts Georgia's law. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, Rose. Hi, Rose. All right. As Raul Bally, let's start with you on the politics front. What are we hearing from some notable elected officials here in Georgia about today's ruling? Just moments ago, Sam and I wrapped up um, a a virtual briefing with uh, the Democratic candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams. Uh, as you would expect, she's uh, angry. She the, the word she just used a few minutes ago was, I'm angry about this decision. I'm appalled and I'm absolutely committed to pushing back. Then uh, she in, in many ways laid out what some of those uh, arguments are going to be, whether it's coverage in rural Georgia, um, and, and uh, what, you know, issues with uh, uh, health care across the state of Georgia. So a really kind of a, an insight on, you know, both her uh, frustration with this decision, but then what's going to happen electorally. Uh, Governor Kemp, as you mentioned, we are not going to hear from him directly. He did put out a written statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think important thing that that jumps out at me looking at the written statement is it has a picture of him signing house bill 481 Mm -hmm. that is the legislation currently held up in the federal courts um and at this point the expectation is the state of georgia specifically the solicitor general of georgia is going to go to the federal courts the 11th uh, circuit which is based here in atlanta and say hey let that law take effect Um, For those in our audience who don't know what that law does is it effectively bans abortion around six weeks of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions for rape, incest, health of the mother, uh, fetal anomalies. Um, The expectation is is they would go and ask that to be allowed to take effect. The governor up to this point has been really not as much focusing on anything, uh, any new legislation. He's just focusing on the effect of that legislation, House Bill 41, kicking in, becoming law, and then basically running on that. Raul, I want to stop you for a moment and back up a little bit for our listeners who may not understand how this process works, because, again, this was held up in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So, again, just if you can lay it out for our audience what this now means, though, for that measure. So... That measure passed in 2019, Mm -hmm. signed by the governor, was then held up in the federal courts. When they had the arguments on uh, on that legislation, it's called the Georgia's Life Act. You've heard uh, some lawmakers call it the heartbeat bill. What you heard was instantly, it was about like 20 seconds in, 
you heard the the justices of the Court of Appeals say, hey, shouldn't we just wait until the U.S. Supreme Court rules before we take up this case? And that's what they did. They Mm -hmm. basically ended the argument there. It was like 25 seconds and done. The discussion at this point is the state of Georgia will go back to the federal court and say, "Okay, look, Roe has been overturned. It has been sent back to the states. Allow the states to now let this law take effect, this law that that would move Mm -hmm. abortion effectively from 20 weeks of pregnancy and then banning after that to six weeks. Again, still allowing for those exceptions. Um, So that's that's kind of the big Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, we've got our great legal experts that can go deeper, but mm-hmm. that's kind of the the big effect. The expectation is, depending on what challenges, it could take a couple of weeks, a couple of months for Georgia's new law to take effect. I want to bring in Sam Greenglass. Sam, have you heard any indication from any other lawmakers, particularly that there is a push to have a special session, to even have a more, to just completely ban abortions across the state here? I have not heard that yet, but I think it is a good moment to talk about, you know, once we have that ruling from the federal appeals court, what happens next? Because it's not the end of the ball game at that moment. You know, as we heard from Professor Kreiss, Uh, In the first segment of your show, uh, a big focus will turn to the state courts where, you know, we're almost certain to get additional legal challenges uh, looking at this law under Georgia state constitution, which many experts says have even more uh, deep privacy protections than the U.S. Constitution. And then I think we're also going to be looking to local district attorneys and prosecutors who will have a really important role in deciding whether or not to pursue criminal charges under Mm -hmm. this law against Mm -hmm. people who seek an abortion or receive an abortion. That language is a bit vague in the 2019 law, but that will be one space that we should all really keep our eyes on uh, should this law be allowed to take effect in the coming months. And we should note that here in Atlanta, as far as we know, the Atlanta City Council and that resolution, we also heard from Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens saying they did not want the Atlanta Police Department to make this some type of priority for them. They were very adamant about that. Are you hearing any other local municipalities also issue some similar uh, mandates or provisions, whether non-binding or not in a resolution? Well, we are already hearing from some of the district attorneys. Um, For example, in DeKalb County, uh, Sherry Boston, who Mm -hmm. told me, you know, when this draft ruling came out a couple of months ago, that she would not prosecute people under Georgia's 2019 law. Uh, I think we heard the same from Athens uh, district attorney this afternoon after today's ruling came out. And, you know, I expect that uh, it will be very different in other counties and other parts of the state where you will have prosecutors who do pursue charges under this law if they're allowed to. And so I think we may expect some very uneven enforcement across the state. You know, a lot of people think that this is up to the state attorney general to decide whether or not to enforce certain provisions of this law. Mm -hmm. And in the state of Georgia, Georgia, the decision uh, when it comes to criminal law is up to district attorneys, not the state attorney general. I think it's an important point to make, Sam Greenless. Also an update for you, we did hear back from, within the hour, we did hear back from Katie Bird, spokesperson for Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who quotes it. He's not available today, but his statement is now on Twitter, and I read his statement earlier. Uh, let's talk about then the, how this 
all will play out come November. We mm-hmm. know about <laughs> nationwide. We know about what this means in terms of Congress. But Raul, now with obviously the lead Dem- Democrat in this state, Stacey Abrams, George Governor Brian Kemp, people saying, tweeting all over social media, okay, abortion is now officially, unofficially on the ballot. What do you suspect we're going to hear from candidates now? I think the first thing that you're going to get from candidates and from activists on both sides is to to make clear to voters that what has happened at the U.S. Supreme Court means that local elections, state legislative elections, district attorney, and then statewide races like the attorney general and the governor's race are so much more important when it comes to the issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, and, and here's here's something I want if there's, you know, there are a couple of important points I want the audience to take away from. First of all, what Sam said, how important district attorneys are going to be in this situation. 50 district attorneys across the state of Georgia, which means you'll have 50 opinions mm-hmm. on how to enforce abortion, abortion laws in Georgia. The other important thing is no matter who the governor is, whether it's Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp, What is going to be important is the Georgia House of Representatives. I was talking to a a lawmaker today, and the word they used was that is going to become the choke point Mm -hmm. of legislation because that is the body that's the closest. A reminder, that legislation, the abortion legislation that passed in 2019, passed with one vote to spare. Now, there are there's likely going to be less Republicans, but more conservative Republicans. How big is that margin? And can any abortion in either direction get through the Georgia House, mm-hmm. whether it's going from six weeks to zero weeks or going from six weeks back to 20 weeks? It's not clear what any of those legislations could get through the Georgia House. So that's going to be the point, whether it's a Governor Abrams or Governor Kemp mm-hmm. when we come back in January. Sam Greenglass, you want to add add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I just want to use one example. Um, You know, when this draft ruling first came out, I spoke with State Senator Jen Jordan, who is running for attorney general as a Democrat here in Georgia. And she told me that abortion was, you know, not front and center when she first launched her campaign. She Mm -hmm. was thinking about pocketbook issues, consumer protection, voting rights. And she said, sometimes you don't pick the fight, the fight picks you. And so I think we are going to start seeing candidates, at least on the Democratic side, shaping their message around this issue. You know, I've heard from voters who decided to volunteer and make phone calls for candidates after uh, the this draft ruling leaked out a month or so ago. Um, you know, I've heard people making the case that, yes, people who care about abortion should be donating to uh, abortion rights groups, but also the state legislatures and state Mm -hmm. legislative candidates are very important in making those decisions, too. Um, I think the one point of caution, though, is we are still several months away from this general election. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been so many topics that have popped up even in the last couple of months that maybe we didn't anticipate entering into 2020. Um, So I think the question is, how much will this still be resonant when people head to the polls in November? Well, and I guess one could argue that between now and November, there are going to be a lot of political flyers, campaign ads, radio, television, social media, what have you from both sides. So y'all just get ready to be blanketed by both. And and one I just want to jump in. There's also the idea 
while Sam is right, we are far away from the election, when this law kicks in, and if it kicks in before the election, mm-hmm. that could put it back front and center. Mm-hmm. Have we heard any statements, Raul or Sam, I'm curious, from House Speaker David Ralston? Yes, we did hear from David Ralston. Give me 10 seconds to pull up that statement. But, you know, his focus of his statement, which, and I pointed this out on Twitter, it is an important, again, an important reminder that the overturning of Roe versus Wade doesn't outlaw abortion, it just kicks it back to the states. And so what he said in his statement is, is an historic decision that protects the role of federalism by returning the authority to the people and elected representatives. Now, later in his statement, he also lays out what I think is going to be an argument you're going to hear beyond just talking about the abortion legislation. In his statement, he talked about extending uh, postpartum Medicaid coverage, paid parental leave, talking about the adoption code. So that's going to be part of of this discussion that you're going to hear in the fall. All right. Our WABE politics reporters, Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you all have been busy on this very historic day. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, fellas. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, our special coverage will continue here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. This is a special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We're back in a moment. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Of course, it was anticipated the Supreme Court of the United States overturning Roe versus Wade as we continue with our special coverage. I want to bring in now Kwanjalyn Jackson, the executive director of the Feminist Women's Health Center here in the area. Ms. Jackson, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. We have been hearing from both sides, some agreeing to come on the program. Many are saying they're not. But for your organization right now, what are you all most focused on given today's ruling? We are committed to continuing to provide compassionate abortion care right now. Um, The law um, has not officially changed in Georgia as a result of the Supreme Court opinion, though we know that there will be changes to um, abortion access in Georgia in the future. So we wanna make sure that anyone who is seeking abortion care today, who already has an appointment or who needs one, will continue to seek out that care from providers across the state. Questions here from so many people, understanding that the law has not taken effect, but for organizations like yours that do provide abortion services, if indeed Georgia's law does change, does change and, and outright bans abortion, you all will not be able to provide that service in in this region. So as it stands currently, Georgia does not have a pre-Roe ban or a trigger ban that goes into effect as a result of the overturning of Roe. What we do have is a six-week ban that narrowly passed the Georgia legislature in 2019 that is currently enjoined in the courts. And so Um, Once we know more about how the court will rule on the status of the existing six-week ban, we'll know more about what's possible in Georgia. But we also know that we have an opportunity 
to continue to provide compassionate care to people who need it right now. And that is what we are focused all of our attention and resources on doing, making sure that the people of Georgia know that we are not going anywhere. Abortion is not the only service that we provide. And so we are deepening our commitment to reproductive justice in the state of Georgia. You mentioned reproductive justice. It's an issue that uh, I've covered, so many folks have covered. When we talk about reproductive justice through your lens, Ms. Jackson, what do you believe folks get wrong about what reproductive justice is or is not about? So I think one of the misconceptions is that reproductive justice is singularly focused on abortion. It absolutely is not. It is a response to what many Black women and women of color saw as the limitations of the privacy-based pro-choice movement that did not fully speak to the experiences of people, everyday people, everyday communities of color, Black women in particular. We are interested in people's ability to have a child, to not have a child, and to parent with dignity and support in safe and healthy communities, and a full unfettered right to bodily autonomy. Those are the things that we are focused on. So we are just as committed to making sure that people have safe, healthy pregnancies and all the resources they need to support the families that they already have and deeply desire, as we are to making sure that people who do not intend to continue a pregnancy can do so safely. Organizations, not only just here in Georgia like yours, but organizations throughout the nation, you all are reportedly mobilizing and strategizing. Any insight what that looks like moving forward as it relates to November? We are, of course, a 501c3 nonpartisan organization. And so what we have been doing in Georgia is encouraging people to register to vote, making sure that they understand the decisions that are made at the state and local level that affect their everyday lives so that they can distinguish between what is the responsibility of Congress and the presidential administration and what might be decided at their city council, county commission, or state legislature. And making sure that people research and understand the people who are on the ballot so that they can vote their values. What the Supreme Court opinion has said is that this goes back to the states. And that is all the more reason that people need to be deeply invested and well-educated on what's happening right where they live. Kwanjalyn Jackson is the executive director of the Feminist Women's Health Center here in our region. Ms. Jackson, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure as always, Rose. I want to now welcome into the conversation from Georgia Right to Life, Ricardo Ricardo Davis, who is the executive director. Mr. Davis, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Rose, thank you for having me today. It's good to see you again. Let's begin here. Um, Samir, let's begin here with just your overall reaction to today's ruling. Well, at Georgia Right to Life, hundreds of thousands of supporters have been of one mind in playing for over the last five decades in hope that the Supreme Court would one day strike down the evil ruling that has allowed the killing of over 63 million innocent American children. And today we rejoice that our prayers have been answered. Mr. Davis, I I realize you are not an academic or a constitutional law professor, but did you, I'm curious, did you read the opinion and what did you make of the justices reasoning in that, in that opinion? Well, I, I must admit I got a chance to download that opinion approximately 90 minutes ago. So it's a lot. It's I a have lot. not been able to. Yeah. 
No, it's a lot. It's over uh, 200 pages. However, let's talk next week, and I'll sure. be glad to give you my opinion. <laughs> okay. And let me ask you this, because there has been, and depending on which state you are in, and there are at least 26 states that we know of that have these so-called trigger laws just waiting mm-hmm. in the balance. Georgia does not have one. But in terms of abortion access and anything tied to it, specific provisions as it relates to the health and welfare of the mother, the health, overall health welfare of the unborn child here, and also in terms of incest and rape, are there any exceptions that your organization believes should be included when we talk about access to abortions? Well, uh, I don't say that, well, a two-year-old ought to be abandoned, uh, ought to be starved, ought to be left to die, and therefore it doesn't matter whether that two-year-old is black, white, disabled, or otherwise. We're going to give care to every one of those two-year-olds. Likewise, we see that essentially the, the ongoing progress of true justice for every person, whether or not they're the mother, the father, or the child in the womb, is going to be to advance legal protections for the mothers, for the children, and for the fathers. And Georgia Rights to Life's mission is to work to restore effective legal protection for all innocent persons, no matter their age, color, skin, whatever. Are there any exceptions, Mr. Davis, in terms of rape or incest? Well, uh, rape is, you don't complicate rape by killing the child that is conceived from rape. What is your, what is your reaction? And I think you and I have had this conversation before in terms of there is no scientific evidence and scientists and those in the medical world have all concluded that when you talk about certain part, certain phases when in the world. When you talk in, about life, when well, I was Hold on, let me get my question out. School. Let me get my question out. Okay. Let me get my question out. But how do you, when there's no scientific designation or whatever that says when life begins? Well, see... I, I don't know where you're getting your scientific studies from. Like I said, when I was in elementary school, you know, when you have division of cells, that that organism is alive, Rose. So the question really nowadays, what we do is we start philosophizing on whether or not the child developing in the womb is worthy of personhood. In other words, being worthy of being treated just like you and me. Mr. Davis, let me ask you this again. Does your organization, in terms of incest or rape, do you believe, and obviously I guess you don't. If you do, I need you to say that because I'm not clear. Are there any exceptions that your organization believe are appropriate for a woman's right to have to seek an abortion 
there is no reason why anyone would take the life of an innocent child rose, no matter how they came into this world, you don't punish the child for what their father did. Now, see, that's for me, that's the highest injustice. You're going to punish the child by killing the child because of the father violating the child's mother. Mr. Davis, I'll give you the last word on this. Where does your organization, what are you all? We're not sure what's going to happen with Georgia's current law here. I imagine your organization is hoping that this. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, what? Oh, yes. Well, we see what we see happening today was a decisive victory, but the war on preborn children here in Georgia is not over. You know, elective abortion is still legal in Georgia. So from our perspective, now is the time to leave no child behind and pursue comprehensive legal protection anchored in our state's constitution by passing Georgia Right to Life's personhood amendment, which would protect all innocent human life from the earliest biological beginning through natural death. Georgia Right to Life President Ricardo Davis, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We'll take a quick break when we come thank back. Thank you for the time. Oh, you're welcome. When we come back, we'll continue with our coverage. And Closer Look continues now on this special edition of our program regarding Supreme Court of the United States and overturning Roe versus Wade. I want to go ahead and bring in Andrea Young, Executive Director of the ACLU of Georgia, because there are some questions about now what happens with Georgia's law, which, of course, is sort of upheld by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Executive Young, Executive Director Young, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, Rose. I've been listening, and this is a very informative show, and I really appreciate your, uh, your, your taking the serious approach to this uh, case. Um, so what happens next, uh, as I think we've heard over and over and, and your listeners need to know, Georgia is, uh, abortion is safe and legal in the state of Georgia. Um, in 2019, you know, as we've heard, there was a, a, a six week abortion ban that uh, ACLU, Sister Song, Feminist Women Health Center uh, challenged uh, in federal court. Uh, it, there, that court, that law is not in effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, while the 11th Circuit waited for the decision in, in uh, Dobbs v. Jackson, which has now come down today. So uh, this will then go back to the 11th Circuit. Um, and we have obviously the Roe, uh, the Roe case has been reversed, um, but we also made a challenge on the personhood. Mm -hmm. So that is also uh, up for argument. For someone listening, says, well, given that the Supreme Court has come now officially with this ruling, how likely is it that you all can have any success in it? Because if it's going to get kicked back to the states, then ultimately it will come down to what state lawmakers, what they're able to do. And, of course, that depending on who you ask and which party you're affiliated with, the outcome seems likely. Yeah. Well, you know. As you know, Rose, ACLU, we are fighters. We, have, we, we continue to fight despite the odds. 
Um, there are uh, there are issues uh, with other parts of this law, like the personhood, the vagueness, and so forth, uh, in terms of federal issues. But there are also state issues, as again one of your uh, one of your um, guests, you know, talked about the strong privacy positions in Georgia's uh, state constitutional interpretation. Uh, so we are looking at all the issues. We are looking at all the options, uh, and you know, we will persist. Uh, and do use all the tools at our disposal to keep abortion safe and legal in the state of Georgia. Uh, as you, you know, also point out, this is a matter for the legislature, mm -hmm. and every single one of them will be on the ballot in November. Andrew Young, Executive Director of the ACLU, ACLU of Georgia, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Again, we want you all to know that we've reached out to Governor Brian Kemp's office and invi personally invited him to be on the program, as well as others to appear on the program. Uh, Brian Kemp was not available, according to his spokesperson. And the other pr people that we reached out to, and there were several, uh, none of them even returned our correspondences. So I wanted to get that out there. I also wanted to bring in a couple of state lawmakers here. And we should note that state lawmaker Jen Jordan, of course, is uh, obviously on the ballot for uh, sec uh, for attorney general here. And I also want to bring in State Senator Kim Jackson. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Good to be, be here. Senator Jackson, let me start with you because you and I have had this conversation before and I've asked you just pointedly as not only a state lawmaker, but also as a, a woman of the cloth, you are a reverend, and the, this abortion issue here and how you maneuver and balance through all of that just your overall reaction to today's ruling? Yeah, like so many people who've already said this, I'm deeply disappointed and outraged and ultimately very concerned about the future of the health of women and others who may be getting pregnant. Um, I, I say this as a person of faith, um, that I do believe that um, we should have autonomy and opportunities to decide how we use and take care of our bodies. Abortion is a, is a healthcare decision, um, and a woman should be able to make that decision with her, her doctor, and her God. Um, and, and trust that those uh, folks who are involved in that decision-making process can do what's best for that person. Senator Jordan, you are a lawyer as well, and I want to get your thoughts on, in terms of the opinion from the Supreme Court, I went through some of them with our constitutional law professors in terms of what they examined and what they came up with. First of all, have you had a chance to read the opinion? I know it's very lengthy, but did you have a chance to at least go through some of it? Yeah, I have. It was... Um, First thing I did, you know, I downloaded it, really wanted to see exactly what the reasoning was. And I have to tell you that um, the opinion is um, is much worse um, than than I expected it would be. I asked our constitutional law professors earlier about the quote, when we talk about the Supreme Court and what it's designed to do and all its duties for so many years here and folks and this is everywhere, folks saying, well, it's clear that the Supreme Court of the United States is political. It's very hard to try to understand if the Supreme Court of the United States is indeed nonpartisan. Just your thoughts on all of this narrative now surrounding our nation's high court based on this ruling. Yeah, I think that, you know, and I believe that Justice Sotomayor may have said it best during the, um, the actual argument. It, it was that if, if in fact the court did this, what, what they've done in Dobbs, uh, are they going to be able to survive it? Um, because it is, it is so clear that 
this is political in that it isn't really about interpreting the Constitution as much as it is putting forth one's own political view or, or philosophy. And um, I think with respect to stability, I think with respect to people actually believing the legitimacy of the court, um, I have real concerns, real concerns about, um, you know, the court being able to survive this ultimately. Governor Brian Kemp, in his statement that he released on Twitter, saying, quote, today's landmark ruling is a historic victory for life. I look forward to its impact on the legal proceedings surrounding Georgia's Life Act and hope our law will be fully implemented and ultimately protect countless unborn lives here in the Peach State. Working closely with the General Assembly, we've made significant strides to stand for life at all stages. That is part of Governor Brian Kemp's statement. Senator Jackson, you're part of the General Assembly, obviously. This will could come down to you all again. Your thoughts on what the governor had to say? Yeah, I, I think that I'm deeply concerned about this notion that he's interested in protecting life on all phases. Um, we are living in the state with the highest rate of maternal mortality um, anywhere else in the nation. Black women in particular are especially at risk of dying in childbirth. Um, and we've done very little actually um, to address that issue. Um, when I think about um, kind of making sure that life is taken care of at all stages, we are still in a state that refuses to expand Medicaid. Um, we we know that healthcare is what saves lives and we won't expand Medicaid. And so I, I just question the authenticity of the governor's statement when he says that he's interested in protecting all lives. Um, and I'm, I'm deeply concerned about what will happen if Georgia's um, what, what we've colloquially called the heartbeat bill, if it goes into effect, um, I'm deeply worried about the health and well-being of those persons who will not have access to the health care that they need when it comes to this reproductive issue. As someone mentioned earlier on this program that this eventually will be left up to district attorneys in a sense. Let's say if, if not only just Georgia's law, but when all this is said and done, that this is left up to district attorneys here. Senator Jordan, I want to get your thoughts on this. As someone in the legal field, district attorneys through your lens, do they want to deal with this and be charged with trying to perhaps charge people with, with murder or charge people with other criminal acts as it relates to whatever is going to come out of this? Right, imprisoning healthcare providers for providing necessary care to their patients. I mean, the Dobbs decision, um, the decision that came down today is so broad that that really it allows states to adopt laws um, that have no exceptions, including an exception for for the health or the life of the mother. Um, and so it, it really is one of these things where you are putting these district attorneys in a really terrible position um, because if you think about it, this is this is unprecedented. I mean, we have we had a constitutional right that was recognized for over fifty years, half a century, right, and and one that they fought to protect all this time, and then all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, in one day, um, you know, yesterday my daughter and I had rights and now today we don't, right? And so now they're going to be charged with, with prosecuting, um, you know, acts or for access to care that they themselves believe is still fundamentally a constitutional right. It's, it's gonna be a really, really difficult time. Senator Jordan, I wanna get your thoughts on this too, because if, for example, and it, 
everyone knows you are running for attorney general here. You win. Brian Kemp is reelected. How do you reconcile in, in dealing with issues like this? I'm just curious. Look, I think the most important thing is that I believe that the attorney general's role is really to protect the people of the state, to represent the people of the state but and not one to might, violate but one the rights ar- of people. One might, ar- I, I understand, and one will argue, one might argue that, okay, but the attorney general does represent the state, and in a sense, our highest official, of course, is the governor here. Your your response to that? Look, what I would do is, if if the federal constitution now, according to these these five people, right, all of a sudden does not protect women and really does not recognize them as as full human beings under the law. If, if, if the U.S. Constitution doesn't, then as the attorney general, what I would do is I would push the issue under the Georgia Constitution. Um, and as some of your constitutional professors have talked about, look, the right of privacy under Georgia's Constitution is, is incredibly strong and has been around a long time. And so there is a real legal question as to whether or not under state law, under state law, women, um, have a fundamental right uh, to privacy that then would allow them access to reproductive health care. As we begin to wrap up, and Senator Jordan, I'll stay with you. You have been very vocal in telling your own personal experiences here. Uh, this historic day, what will it say you think in the future and for, the, and for future jurists, folks like you who go to law school and who have some, and we, and again, this is the words of a from our constitutional law professors, you know, that their students, what this says to their students, today's ruling. Your thoughts on that? Look, I think, I think the hardest thing about today has really been about being a mother to a daughter. Um, this, you know, I, I, as, as a almost 50 year old woman in terms of, of access to abortion, that, that is not something that I have to worry about, right? But what I do have to worry about is the fact that my daughter now is going to have less rights um, than I have had my entire adult life. What I have to worry about is that my daughter is not going to be seen as a full and equal human being um, in this country. What I do have to worry about is that if my daughter is ever pregnant and and her life is, is in danger or threatened, is she actually going to be able to survive that? Um, is her life going to be as valued um, as anyone else's? And those are the real concerns that I have that, you know, the women in this country, the girls in this country, um, you know, that they actually have some kind of control over their lives. And, and what this decision tells me, it is just dripping with condescension, condescension and misogyny, I have to tell you. What this tells me is that women are not valued. Women are second-class citizens, and, and that just cannot stand. Senator Jackson. Yeah, I, I agree with Jen and so many of Senator Jordan and so many of these points. And, and, and I'll just say, you know, I have um, I happen to be blessed to represent the city of Clarkston, which is a place in which women and people have been 
resettled from all types of war-torn countries. They come to this country in hopes of a, a new start, of a fresh start, of an ability to, to overcome so many of the obstacles. And I've actually sat with women who were raped in refugee camps, arrived in this country pregnant, and, and needed to make a different choice about what the future of their life looked like. And so I've, I've, I've sat with them as a pastor and helped them come to the, the conclusion that they needed to go to a clinic to get the reproductive care that they needed um, so that they could have a fresh start. And so to think that a woman or a person could come to this country and just want to have an opportunity uh, to to be able to move forward from the trauma of war and rape and that we would not allow that, I think is deeply troubling. And it's not the kind of country that my grandparents dreamed for me. And it's certainly not the kind of country that I dream for, for our children as we continue on. Georgia Democratic Senator, State Senator Kim Jackson, also heard from State Senator Jen Jordan. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We now join 1A in progress. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 